6 and 7, and I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, with love. So a teacher once asked her students, what is something good you did today? And her first student responded, well, I I gave money to a homeless man. And she said, well, that was good. The second student responded and said, I helped my mom with uh, the chores around the house. And the teacher said, that is great. Third kid said, well, I helped an old lady cross the street. And once again, the teacher praised that for having contributed to doing something good. And then a fourth kid spoke up and said, well, I prevented a murder. And the teacher is like, really? How did you prevent a murder? And that kid said, through (laughs) self-control. You know, it can be easy to pride ourselves on self-control when we set the bar at an unreachable standard, right? When we set it really high and we say, well, I've got self-control because I didn't do that. But is that all self-control really is? You see, as we continue this study of of 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, and these attributes that we're told to add to our faith, the next one on the list is is self-control. Do you have self-control? Do do you understand what self-control really is? Let's talk about it today. Now, I know in this series... I've used a lot of Greek terminology, and I'm typically not a fan of spending a lot of time talking about Greek. But I've, I've found it kind of necessary to bring up Greek terms in this series, because essentially every week we're doing a word study, and it can really help us to understand what these terms meant in their original language, not just in our English translation. So the term self-control, it comes from a Greek word that according to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, means power or lordship over oneself or over something else. Power or lordship. In other words, this word connotes the idea of mastering something so that it is brought under your subjection. That's what self-control is. And the first verse that comes to mind for me regarding self-control is, is a statement made by Jesus about discipleship that appears in Luke chapter 9 and verse 24. He said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I want to begin today with two observations about that statement. The first thing I want you to notice is that adding self-control is not optional. Adding self-control is not optional. Jesus just defined discipleship in terms of self-control. He made it very clear that you cannot be a disciple if you're unwilling to deny yourself. Self-denial is part of self-control. It's the deliberate decision not to do what you want because you only want to do what God wants. Let me say that again. Self-denial is the deliberate decision 
not to do what you want because you only want to do what the Lord wants. And Paul indicates that this is what distinguishes the believer from the unbeliever. It's over in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17, Paul tells the church in Ephesus to no longer walk as pagans do. And he goes on to say that you shouldn't walk like the pagans because that's not, that's not the way you learn Christ. Here's how you learn Christ, he says, picking up in verse 22, 23, and 24. He says, you learn Christ, that includes putting off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And, and what you learned about Christ means putting on the new self. The new self created after the likeness of God. Putting off the old, putting on the new. That's how you learn Christ. What Paul is essentially saying is that self-control is, is a requirement. It's the deliberate decision to say no to this and yes to that. Self-control is a requirement of discipleship. And if the deny yourself instruction or the put off your old self instruction are not enough for you to recognize this requirement, then just look at what Paul's instructions are in second, no, in Titus chapter 2, the first six verses. In Titus chapter 2, he told Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And when you examine what that includes, you'll see that self-control is a key component. Because in Titus chapter 2 and verse 2, he told, Paul told Titus to teach older men to be self-controlled. In verses 3 through 5, he told Titus to teach older women to train the young women to be self-controlled. Now the implication is that the older women will first possess self-control so that they can in turn train the young women to possess it. And then finally you can get to verse 6 of Titus 2, where Paul told Titus to teach the younger men to be self-controlled. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men. I think all of us can fit in one of those groups. And every one of them is told to have self-control. See, regardless of your age or your gender, you're expected to have self-control. And that means if you want to be faithful to God, then adding self-control is not optional. The other thing I want you to understand about self-control, based on Luke chapter 9 and verse 24, is that self-control, adding self-control is not personal. Let me explain what I mean. If you look at Luke chapter 9 and verse 24, Jesus says, if anyone would deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, Immediately after acknowledging the importance of self-denial, Jesus said, follow me. Self-denial is followed by following Jesus. In other words, you deny yourself in order to give control of your life over to him. That means from the moment you deny yourself, you are no longer in charge. Your ability to control your thoughts, your attitudes, your actions, 
is not due to your incredible power. It's due to Christ's control of your life. For the Christian, self-control is a misleading term. For the Christian, self-control means I'm the master of my domain. I'm the one who's in charge. I've got this all on my own. Really, for the Christian, self-control is God control. It's you declaring that I'm handing over control to the Lord God Almighty because I understand that he's the one who's ultimately in control. And you've got to notice that self-control is a divinely directed byproduct of living a Christian life. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23 says that self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit that are produced in the lives of those who walk by the Spirit and are led by the Spirit. That means that self-control isn't your achievement, it's God's achievement in and through you because of His Spirit. And I think that's why Paul said in, first, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, and verse 7, that God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. In that verse, Paul identified a spirit of self-control as a gift from God. It is therefore spoken of as something that is divinely inherited rather than individually achieved. And then there's Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. That says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That verse indicates that we are able to be trained to be self-controlled by God's grace. And the point is that God deserves the credit for any and all control manifested in your life. Not you. So don't boast in your self-control. Don't relish in your self-control. Don't pride yourself on your self-control because your self-control is not about you. It's about God. Just be sure to give credit where credit is due. It's God control more so than it is self-control. And so the Bible clearly indicates that self-control is an expectation, that it is a God-given and spirit-led attribute. But what does it really mean to add self-control to our faith? I want to spend the rest of our time answering that question. And there are three things I want to point to this morning First, when it comes to self-control, self-control means renunciation when it comes to sinful desires. Many of you will remember the Just Say No campaign back in the 80s. The idea of refusing something that's sinful, of saying no to something that's sinful, that's what we're talking about. Self-control means renouncing any sinful desire. We read Titus 2 a moment ago, which said that the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. The NIV says it this way, The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Saying no to ungodliness and worldly passions is the essence of self-control. It finds its greatest application in the arena of sexual temptation. When it comes to sexual sin, we are specifically instructed to practice self-control via abstinence. Abstinence involving sexual immorality. Listen to what Paul had to say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3-4. through 4. 
He said, this is the will of God. And I mentioned this verse last week because I mentioned that there are four specific occasions in the New Testament where that phrase, this is the will of God, appears. This is one of those four. And anytime we hear, this is the will of God, I think we, our ears should perk up a bit because don't you want to be in the center of the will of God? And Paul, in this passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3-4, through 4, will go on to identify the will of God as this. That you abstain from sexual immorality, and that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. If you want to do the will of God, then you have to possess self-control when it comes to sexual sin in particular, and to renouncing anything that is ungodly or sinful in general. And no one exemplified this better than Joseph. As you may recall, while Joseph was employed by Potiphar as his steward, Potiphar's wife became attracted to Joseph and repeatedly tried to seduce him. Now, it would have been very easy for Joseph to rationalize committing adultery with Potiphar's wife. He could have justified it on the grounds that it would have been easy for him to keep it a secret from his master. No one would have to know. They could have kept that a secret for a long time. He could have justified it on the grounds that a relationship with her could have made life easier for him. She could have treated him like the favored one he was when he was in his dad's house back in Israel. He could have justified it on the grounds that God had seemingly forsaken him. He's not in Canaan anymore. He's in a new country with new deities. And he got here because the God of his ancestors allowed his brothers to sell him into slavery. He could have justified this sin because he felt like God wasn't there anymore. But Joseph did not justify anything. He chose to exercise self-control. And in that moment when Potiphar's wife grabbed him, he ran. He ran out of his clothes because he was that self-controlled. The reason he did it, we're told in Genesis chapter 39 and verse 9, what his mental process was. He said to himself, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? For David, self-control was about not sinning against God, not doing something that compromised his relationship with God. Self-control means renunciation when it comes to sinful desires because you don't want to sin against God. When it comes to this aspect of self-control, we would all do well to remember 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, which says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Self-control in this regard is all about respecting whose we are and not doing anything to compromise our relationship with Him. But I have to admit, self-control is not just limited to renouncing sinful desires. Self-control also means moderation when it comes to permissible indulgences, if you will. Here's what I mean. 
Self-control is more than the ability to restrain oneself from the sinful desires. It, it also means the ability to avoid excess in things that are lawful. Think about food for a moment. It's not wrong to consume food. You kind of have to if you want to live. But throughout the Bible, gluttony is condemned. In Psalm chapter 78, verse 18, the author equates the Israelites' food demands during the wilderness wandering to an act of rebellion in the form of testing God. In Philippians chapter 3, and verse 19, Paul condemns those whose God is their belly and identifies them as enemies of the cross of Christ. There are other passages you can read about gluttony. See, it's not wrong to consume food. But it is wrong when you can't practice moderation, right? Think about money. It's not wrong to acquire or spend money. But throughout the Bible, greed is condemned. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 10, Paul identified greed as one of the sins that will prevent one from inheriting the kingdom of God. And in Luke chapter 12 and verse 15, just before Jesus told the parable of the rich fool, he said, be on your guard against all kinds of greed because life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Greed is frequently condemned throughout the Bible. There's nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with spending money. But greed and the commensurate things that go with it can be sinful. See, we can't just look at self-control as a, I need to say no to this thing that's bad. We need to see self-control in the context of, I need to be cautious about how much of this I absorb, how caught up in this I get. I need to be careful about going down this road of excess with things that are completely neutral in their ethical quality. You may recall Daniel in this regard. When King Nebuchadnezzar conquered the southern kingdom of Judah, he transported some of the attractive, the noble, the intelligent young men of the nation back to Babylon for the purpose of training them in, in his courts so that they could be useful to him in his kingdom. And Daniel was one of those young men. Those subjected to this program weren't treated as prisoners, though. They were treated as princes. They got to eat from the king's kitchen. But Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8 tells us that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. Now, we don't know exactly how the king's food would have, how it would have defiled Daniel. Maybe it wasn't kosher according to the Jewish dietary laws of Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 12. Maybe it was sacrificed to Babylonian deities and therefore eating it would have been tantamount to idolatry. Maybe, maybe Daniel just didn't want the king to get credit for his health, so he didn't want to eat that food. But what if Daniel's concern was more about self-control? There's an interesting passage in Proverbs chapter 23, verses 1 through 3. It says, When you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you, and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. 
What that proverb is saying is that you must be careful to practice moderation. The instruction to put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite is an idiomatic way of saying that you should take extraordinary measures to avoid overindulging. So maybe Daniel is heeding this proverbial wisdom and just trying to practice self-control in this scenario where it would have been very easy to enjoy excess. See, there are some things in which self-control doesn't require complete renunciation, but instead simply requires moderation. And when it comes to this aspect of self-control, we would all do well to remember 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12, which says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Some of us, we need to grasp this aspect of self-control. Because self-control means moderation when it comes to permissible indulgences. Self-control does mean a third thing. Self-control also means determination when it comes to challenging endeavors. As one author said, in addition to being able to tell ourselves no, we must also be able to say, I can and I must. This is the side of self-control that says, I'm going to keep trying, even though it would be so easy to give up. This is the part of self-control that makes the athlete keep training, the student keep studying, the musician keep practicing, or the, the painter to keep painting. This is the self-control, not in the sense of purposeful, purposeful uh, restraint or careful moderation, but in the sense of intentional persistence. And I believe this is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 9 when he says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. Paul was likely familiar with the the athletic events of the day, particularly the Olympic Games and the other games that happened in Greece at the time because there were four different versions of them. Right now, we have the Olympics going on. And the thing about athletes that compete on that level is that they have to practice self-control in the sense of abstaining from things that could harm their body or hinder their performance. And they have to practice self-control in the sense of moderation in order to maintain a healthy diet. But they also have to practice self-control in the sense of perseverance. When they are training, there are times they want to quit. There are times they want to cut corners. There are times they want to take a day off. But they have to push through in order to succeed. In fact, an Olympic athlete in Paul's day could be disqualified from the events for not exercising regularly or not getting sufficient rest. And Paul says that the Christian life requires that same commitment to self-control, that same determination to persist in the face of adversity. Because he goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 26 and 27, and says, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You see, self-control is also about enduring through the difficult stuff. Saying, I'm not quitting, I'm not giving up, I must push forward. 
And I think this speaks to David. There was a period of David's life when he was having to hide out in caves because Saul sought him every day. But on one particular occasion, Saul stopped in a cave for a potty break. And it just happened to be the cave that David was hiding in, deep in the depths of it. And David's men thought this was an opportunity that shouldn't be passed up. This is David's chance to stop living in caves, to stop being a fugitive, to take the throne for which he had been anointed already. They encouraged him to sneak up behind Saul and kill him. David didn't do that, but David did sneak up behind Saul and cut off a corner of his robe. And David's conscience was stricken because of this. We read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 24. He is conscious stricken because he cut off a piece of cloth. Now, why did David's conscience bother him? 1 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 6 tells us why. Because David turned to his men and he said, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put up my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. In other words, David was conscience stricken because at that moment, he almost gave in. He almost stopped being a man after God's own heart. He almost quit persevering because he considered the possibility of harming Saul. And he had to remind himself that he must be faithful to God even when life gets difficult. See, when it comes to this aspect of self-control, we would all do well to remember Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13, which I'm sure the vast majority of you could quote by heart. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Self-control is that I can mentality that overcomes the I can't mentality that tries to deter, deter, deter you from deter you. I cannot say that word. I'm trying to persist right now. I'm trying to have self-control. I'm just kidding. It tries to prevent you from doing what you ought to do. So here's the thing. Self-control is saying no to sinful things. Self-control is practicing moderation in acceptable things. And self-control is persisting through difficult things. The question each and every one of us has to ask this morning is, have I added self-control in all its forms? Because I have to add self-control to my faith. Can I be vulnerable with you for a moment? This was not an easy sermon to write. Because I've failed in every aspect of self-control at some point in my life. And I reflected on the fact that I've mentioned self-control in sermons before. I've, it's been a point in sermons over the years, but I've never done an in-depth study of just self-control. I've never spent time examining and talking about what self-control entails. I think consciously or subconsciously I've avoided it because my lack of self-control has been pretty obvious right in this region. 
And I'm honored that I get to be the individual who stands up here and preaches and shares God's word every week, but I'm ashamed of the fact that for so long, I lacked any sort of self-control. So when I wrap up this sermon, I'm going down to the front row and I'm repenting of the lack of self-control I've had for however number of years it's been now. Because I've got to admit, I've got to admit, I've got to acknowledge that I haven't had it. This morning, you might be just like me, not in the sense of you struggle to have self-control with, but the fact that you lack self-control. This morning, you might not be saying no to the things you should be saying no to. This morning, you might not be practicing moderation in the areas that you should be practicing moderation. This morning, you might not be persisting through the things you ought to be persisting through. This morning, you might need to repent of failing to add self-control to your faith. If so, I invite you to join me while together we stand and sing.